Good morning, everyone. I'm going to <laughs> open in prayer, and then we'll get into our teaching today. Thank you, Lord, for the gathering of your flock. May we uh, encourage and exhort one another and learn from your word that we might grow and be sanctified. And may in all things we give honor and glory to your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are studying about the divine counsel. I left a couple slides from last time, but I'm not going to go back over this. Um, I think Christy included those on your printout. But we saw last week this divine counsel um, behind the scenes in 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. And we talked about what the issues were and that um, Ahab didn't want to hear the truth. He did not have a love for the truth. And we find out what happened was there was a lying spirit that was actually part of the divine council meeting that became a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's false prophets to deceive him to go up into battle. And in contrast, Micaiah was a true prophet from God, but at first he just told the king what he wanted to hear. And then the king said, no, tell me what God said. So he said, all right, you're going to die. And then he says, see, I told you this guy never tells me anything I like to hear. And so that we covered that last time. And so that was uh, showing the necessity for a love for the truth. And then we went to Psalm 82, which is explicitly about this divine counsel. And it says in Psalm 20, 82, 1 and 2, by way of review, God has taken his place in the divine counsel in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. And then there's a quote, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So here is Yahweh speaking to this council that includes Elohim, that we're not the one true God. And obviously they're not good angels because they're being rebuked by God for judging unjustly and showing partiality to the wicked. Neither Christ nor who is God the Son and part of presiding and speaking within the divine council can possibly judge unjustly or show partiality to the wicked because they are holy and pure and sinless. And the holy angels are not going to do that either. So we concluded that these must be beings that are indeed part of the council, but are fallen and wicked. That was Psalm 82. And then I include the last two verses because these are cited by Jesus in John 10, something we looked at last time I taught. He said, I said, you are God, sons of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit a nation. So here is a prophecy that in the very end, the wicked spiritual rulers that for now are not uh, seen on the earth by humans, the earth has been divided into geographical territories with boundaries with human rulers over those. We saw that earlier in one of my classes from Genesis in the Table of Nations. And we also have looked at Romans 13 and also various passages in the Acts. By the way, we will get back to Acts, but there's interaction with human rulers. The reason we're in this right now is because in Acts 14, the pagans thought that because Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel and God did signs, that they were gods, that the Elohim had come down. And we're showing that the pagans knew about this divine council. And remember, 
in their corporate history when there used to be interaction, which is something God stopped and put everybody under human rulers. So we looked at that. And then we saw, as, as way of review, there was a chiastic structure to Psalm 82. And I cite the source I have for this, a, a, a Hebrew scholar who wrote a commentary for the Word series. And you see here, God is judging in the divine assembly. Then there's a charge against the Elohim. And then we see the charge uh, violated by these Elohim. And then the center of the chiasm is their failure. The injustice and wickedness going on because of their failure. Now, again, what they were doing is all in the unseen realm. On the earth, justice is administered by human rulers. But we saw earlier in Daniel that behind the scenes, there is a battle. And we saw there Michael, who was representing Israel, in a battle with the prince of Persia. We saw that in Daniel. So every once in a while, the Bible lets us know what's going on, but normally we don't. And I think I've said this a lot. I'll keep saying it. It's God's mercy and for our benefit that we don't. Okay. And what he's provided are the human rulers. And we see that in Acts, which started this whole thing. This discussion in Acts. And the human rulers are those to which Paul will ultimately appeal and which the disciples appealed whenever there was a tumult as the gospel spread through Asia Minor. And so then this is something that's revealed now. Um, they had a former status. There's a sentence and then there's a prayer for God to rise and judge the earth. Now, what's revealed in Psalm 82 is that this situation will not go on forever. There is prophecy in the Bible, especially in Daniel and his prophecy of the 70 weeks, that at some future point, there will be uh, a change. And that even these wicked rulers, including Satan, the accuser of the brethren, will be cast down, judged, and ultimately put in to hell. But that's not yet. So for now, we're in the period between Daniel's 69th week and 70th week, which is the entire church age. During this entire age that we are living in now, from Pentecost to the rapture, human rulers are ruling on the scene of history with defined geographical boundaries. And Christ could return at any time. That's the imminent return of Christ. The signs, Eric and I did a whole series on this on CICministry.org uh, talking about Matthew 24, that the signs that you read about in, in part of Matthew 24 happened during Daniel's 70th week, not during the church age. So no sign must be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. The next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. People like to do sign watching, but it only makes sense to do that if you believe in the pre-trib or pre-wrath rapture or post-trib rapture or mid-trib rapture. If you believe in pre-trib rapture, then you believe that Christ could have returned at any time during church history, which is a time set in the sovereign purposes of God, which are not revealed. The time is unknown, and what's revealed in Matthew 25 and the end of Matthew 24 is that life will be going along in the ordinary fashion it's always gone through, and then the rapture will happen, and it'll be suddenly and unexpected. Eric and I went into detail proving that on that podcast series that's on CACministry.org, if you want to hear it. And so, therefore, we don't know that, oh, now it's going to be this year because Putin did this or 
England did that, or somebody did this. People like to do that because it gets headlines, but it's not what the Bible's saying. The rapture can happen at any time, and when it does, it'll be suddenly, unexpectedly. And as long as we are in the same sphere, the nations are ruled by human rulers, and the fallen beings aren't directly, tangibly interacting with humans, even though humans want that. We know we're still during that period between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. Believe that. It's biblical. If you question it, go listen to the series that Eric and I did and feel free to call us and tell us what we're missing. I'm telling you, once you hear it, you don't think you won't th- probably think we're missing anything because Eric did such a great job of laying that out. So now let's move ahead. Another incident in the Old Testament where we have the curtain pulled back and we're able to see something happening at this divine council meeting. God is totally in charge of this council as he's in charge of history. But that the council exists is clear. We saw it in Psalm 82, in Daniel, and 1 Kings 22, and so on. Here's another incident. And this will show that there are beings that are part of this that are not good angels. Okay, Job 1, 6 through 8 from the Lexham English Bible. And I'm reading it right now. And it happened one day that the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came into their midst. Now, I'll I'll have Eric comment on the Satan and what, what, what some of the issues are there, but let me continue to read. So Yahweh said to Satan... From where have you come? Let me stop right there. It's never a bad time to teach theology. When God asks a question, it doesn't imply that God lacks omniscience. Right? He's bringing this out so we get to see it. God knows all things. It's not like God wouldn't have known had he not asked Satan to tell him. All right. I'm just insulating you against the false teachers out there. From where have you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming on the earth and walking about in it. Unquote. So Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Indeed, there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless man and upright and fearing, God-fearing and turning away from evil. So Satan evidently is on an inspection tour. I mean, some of the commentaries say that maybe that was his role. What's going on on the earth? Come back and tell us. We, now, again, this doesn't imply that God's lacking omniscience. We see the same thing at Babel where God comes down and sees the men building the tower. Okay, so this anthropomorphic language is for our benefit that we can understand God in the Bible because we are a different order of being than God is. He's the eternal, non-contingent creator. We're created beings, and for us, things happen on the earth, and things happen sequentially. The only way you and I as human beings can understand time is how time happens sequentially, which means there's always a before and an after. Okay? God is eternal, but he interacts with us as we are so that we can understand him. So take it for what it is and don't get upset about it. And don't try to make a false doctrine like some people do who claim God doesn't know everything or doesn't know the future. So things are explained to us before and after and sequential. That's what time is to us. So God inspects the tower 
where they're trying to reach up to the gods. Remember Acts 14, they think the gods came down. There's been a desire since the flood for by humans to regain direct access with these sons of God, the Elohim. But God has denied that and brought judgment. And we have to believe his prophets and live by faith in what he said. But these scenes happen in the Bible so that we can understand how God is ruling his universe. Now, let me quote some scholars here, Dr. Hartley, New International Commentary in the Old Testament, a footnote within his commentary on Job on this passage. Quote, the setting for this scene closely parallels, quote, within a quote, the assembly of the gods, unquote, within a quote, that is well attested in ancient Near Eastern literature. Let me stop there. The Hebrew Bible is not the only ancient literature who knew about this idea of the divine assembly. The Babylonian literature talks about it as well. They also knew about the creation and the flood. And they knew about the giants and the interactions. Their material is mythological in that it has ideas and conjecture. And if you read it, you can see why it's not really inspired scripture. But it echoes something that everybody knew really happened. The whole ancient world knew the flood happened. Okay. Now the critics will say, because they find that literature, that that proves that the Bible was borrowed from the pagans. But what I did when I was doing primary source research on this, when I was in seminary and also teaching a high school class, I took, uh, made copies at the seminary of the Babylonian religious material and then also printed out some stuff from the Bible. And I had the students read both. And then we got back the next week and said, what did you learn? Well, they, they said, well, the Bible makes sense and this other stuff is silly. Okay, the, the, the gods, according to the Babylonians, despised humans. And they thought about fickle ways to make the humans miserable. And you might look at Job and think, see the same things going on here. But the difference is their stuff is based on a vague memory of something that actually happened, but filtered through non-inspired sources, the traditions of man. The Bible is talking about the same event, but from inspired sources that were written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a way of a cogent view of it. And also with the view is a revealed of a loving God who has a saving purpose that's going on in the midst of all of this. And we get an idea why he allows evil. You don't get that from the pagans. All you get is nihilism or fickle polytheistic deities that have, want to have some fun at the expense of humans. All right? So you can, all of this is something you can research. Back to the citation from uh, Hartley, and then I'll get to, get to you here. <clears throat> Several passages since Hartley in the Old Testament seem to assume that God governs the world through a council of the heavenly hosts. Psalm 29, 1, Psalm 82, Psalm 89, 6 through 7, and so on. 1 Kings 22, 19, and 23. We looked at some of those. But Hartley says, but in the Old Testament, the complete dependence of these sons of God on God himself and their total submission to him is not questioned. There's the difference. The pagans knew about it, but their Bible has a different understanding of God. Okay? Back to Hartley. In this way, Israel altered the ancient Near Eastern understanding of the divine council to conform to its monotheistic belief. So it's the same story, but now it's from inspired sources, and it's monotheistic. Go ahead, Eric. No. 
Go here. That's me. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I was just going to mention, Bob one time mentioned that when you look at the Babylonian sources, the Babylonian gods are worse than human beings. And the other thing to keep in mind is the Babylonian gods come from matter. So when you read Genesis 1.1, it's a powerful apologetic against that because God is the eternal being. So in the Babylonian myths, their gods come from pre-existing matter. The problem with that, of course, is the second law of thermodynamics rules out pre-existing matter because it shows that the universe can't be eternal. So the Bible says, no, only God is eternal. That's consistent with the second law of thermodynamics. The Babylonian myths say their gods came from pre-existing matter. Well, how can you have eternal matter with the second law of thermodynamics? Because you'd have to have entropy that says one day everything is going to burn out. Well, how can you have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of energy? So the second law of thermodynamics says that your universe can't be eternal. So therefore, if your universe isn't eternal, you have Babylonian gods that are coming from something that one day was nothing. So the point is you have to have self-creation. It's, it's absurd, whereas the Bible's consistent with the laws of logic and, that's, and, and, and the scientific laws. And so that's something I think yeah. is very compelling for the Bible. There's no reason we can't take the Bible for what it says and stand firmly in its defense. And we don't need to massage any of this. See, the, the mistake that was made in the earlier centuries, well, especially during the period of the rationalists, as Christians try to massage the Bible to sort of hide this worldview. Okay? Psalm 89 is a good example. It sometimes was uh, translated so it kind of hides the divine counsel. You don't quite see what's going on. But it seems foolish to do that when Jesus himself cites it in John 10. And this worldview is well known and we're better off not trying to dress up the Bible to make it more palatable to the rationalists, but tell people exactly what it says and why. Aren't we better off knowing? Because in the end, God is still the loving, kind, sovereign God who's going to intervene in history and save his people and judge his enemies. That's clear in all of this. But see, people like Dr. Greg Boyd decide God doesn't know the future Otherwise, none of this would be in the Bible. So he has a different version of God and a different theology. A God who's limited in his um, omniscience. Now, Satan here is literally the Satan. Could you comment on that? Eric is our resident Hebrew scholar at this moment. He is the accuser of the brethren, (coughs) Satan. So what's interesting is here in the throne room, he is accusing... But when you get to Revelation chapter 12, he's going to be thrown down. And the the interesting thing about that is a lot of people will claim, well, he was thrown down at the cross. Well, that's not correct because in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brethren is actually thrown down during the tribulation period. So the reason why you have hell on earth during the great tribulation is because Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is thrown down. And he's the one who gives rise to the beast and the Antichrist. So right now, even as we speak, he's making allegations against us. He's the accuser of the brethren, Revelation chapter 12. But as Bob taught us well in Colossians 2, the moment you trusted in Jesus, the accusation that Satan makes against you won't hold any water because he paid your debt in full. Jesus did on the cross. So that's why the accuser of the brethren can rail all he wants, but it won't bother us. So I'm sorry. So I'm not sure I heard exactly what you were saying about Satan's, um, where he is right now. Like, is he in, on the earth still doing this stuff personally, or is he held somewhhere else. Do we, do we, what we, we can that? affirm is we're, we're not exactly sure how okay. God allows him to travel, but we know okay. that he still has access to the throne. Right. But that ends in Revelation 12. He's thrown down. Yeah. What about access to people here? <clears throat> yeah, again, we don't know if he still has access to people like Job. But, but today, as he did to Job, what we can be confident is that God allows him to do precisely only what God allows him to do. Mm-hmm. But what we can know is he does have access to the throne even now, to accuse us. But that ends in Revelation 12 when he's thrown down. Yeah. And um, so The Bible also know. does portray in the New Testament an entire system 
of demonic evil beings that Satan is in charge of. Well, the reason, here's the reason I'm asking. In the last couple of months, I've had two people say that Satan appeared to them personally to tempt them or to do something or, you know, whatever they use, they were claiming that. And I, I don't believe it. I'm like, why would Satan like come for you out of the billions of people? You know, it's just like, it doesn't even make sense to me. But I just, I'm curious about how likely something like that is for anyone. Yeah, and again, we, we're, it's not revealed to us um, whether or not that occurs, but it, it certainly isn't. Um, here, here's what I'd say. We can't know that. Right. Um, their subjective experience is something that's outside of Scripture. But what we can affirm is the Scripture shows that Satan has access to the throne room. He can accuse people. He can harm people. But in Revelation 12, we know that his access is going to be finished. So at the cross... Satan goes down, down, and down because his allegations after the cross, they don't matter because they've been paid for by those who, for those who believe in Christ, it's been paid for. But then in a point in time, the great tribulation, he's going to be thrown down to earth. Well, then he's going to be thrown down into the abyss, and then he's going to be put into the lake of fire. So after the cross, Satan goes down, down, and down, but it's in a, a process because the Reformed theologians say, well, it all happens after the cross, he's thrown down. Well, that's not true. And so so we have to see that there's a process going on in redemptive history of his being thrown down. Not only that, John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well said. And listen, uh, whoever's hearing this and dear saints here, we don't know these things. What we know is what God has shown us when he pulls back a curtain. Most of the time, this realm stays unseen to us. And that's for our good and our benefit. We don't know the names of the demons, and we don't need to. We don't know the details of how Satan's running his kingdom. And I'm going to show you from Jude and Second Peter that to try to intrude ourselves into the divine council meeting in order to tell Satan what to do is an affront to God, and it's a wicked sin, there will be judged. We've gone beyond our domain. We have appealed to the throne of grace. I'm going to show you that we insult God every time we say something to Satan or the demons negatively. We insult God. And we're saying to God, we don't trust you to run your universe. We don't trust you to do the right thing. We don't like how you're allowing Satan to do whatever it is he does. So therefore, rather than coming to the throne of grace and asking Yahweh, the the head, to take care of it, we're going to go into the divine council realm and take charge of it ourselves by telling the demons what to do. And thus, we're putting ourselves in God's place and we're blaspheming God. And I'm saying that the spiritual warfare teachers are blasphemers or in wicked, sinful rebellion against God, and they shall be judged. Because I talk to the victims of these false teachers by the hundreds and hundreds over 25 years. And they end up, some of them lost their money paying for curse breakers and deliverance counselors. Their hope, I just got a, an email just two days ago. I don't have any money, but I'm thinking I may have to go to California to get somebody to get this demon out of me. I tell everybody that if God removes you from Satan's domain, Colossians 1.13, and puts you under Christ, you always and every time have access to the throne of grace. And what we have to do is accept God's answer. I have heard many similar stories. The answer is always the same thing. Appeal to God at the throne of grace, and he has your best interest in mind. Furthermore, I will say this for those who are listening. We cannot be sure what is or is not demonic. When it comes to dreaming and the intersection of awake and asleep consciousness, the best thing to do, in my opinion, is ignore Get up, have some coffee, and go about ordinary life. It doesn't pay to try to interact with the demonic. Always go 
to Christ. And what's unique in, I don't know if it's unique, but what I've been trying to do for, since the 90s when I started writing and teaching about this, previous evangelical leaders would deny the validity of it. Or Peter, C. Peter Wagner talked about the, the excluded middle. Yeah, or whether these things were ever really demons or whatever. I don't do that. I believe that it's real. What I'm doing is telling people to go to Christ and to not directly interact with the demons. And secondly, I'm always saying the demons have one job, and they've been doing it for many millennia, and that job is to deceive. They're lying spirits. Okay? So anything that comes from them, any experience, any data, any seeming geographic location that we might be able to discern is not to be trusted because these things do nothing but lie. And I explained that in the article I wrote about it. And I spent five years in a kind of ministry that was interacting with demons. And I realized after five years that I myself had been deceived. And I wrote an article repenting and explaining why I was deceived and how I was deceived and how God has used that for me to help other people. Always ignore it. Always go to God. I'm going to show you maybe what I'll do after we have this little discussion is do a quick fast forward through where we're going to go. Yes, Peter. Just a quick question. Could some Christians be confusing um, their access to the Holy Spirit with those spirit beings? Uh, well, yeah, because there are, uh, there's a warning in Second Corinthians about another Jesus, another spirit. Okay, so we did a, a DVD on how to discern a true work of the spirit. And the way we discern spirits, discerning spirits is to be able to tell what's from the Holy Spirit versus what's from some other exactly. nefarious spiritual force or being. And the way we discern spirits is by the gospel itself and the confession of Christ. And in that DVD, I went through scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture, each one of which says the same thing. That with the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon people, causes them to confess Christ. And that's in direct fulfillment of the promise of Jesus Christ himself, who said in John, when he, the Spirit, comes he will testify of me. And that's how you know. And so you look at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, and what happened was they preached Christ. How do we know what's a psychological malady or a spirit or a physical ailment and so on? We don't know. And we don't have to know because we have, have access to the one who does know. That's what's unique and great about this, is we can go directly to God at the throne and let him deal with it. I tell everybody, let God deal with it. Let God deal with it. And I'm going to show you. Let me have a preview here. Look at What did Paul do when he was buffeted by what we know was a messenger from, of Satan? says that literally in the Greek, an angel of Satan. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now remember, the answer was, but he has said, my grace is sufficient for you, Right? My strength is perfected in weakness. So I am showing you here that when the same thing happened with the great apostle Paul, who had been personally taught by Jesus Christ and was an authoritative apostle, a messenger of Satan came. He didn't rebuke Satan. He went to God and appealed to God.
and God decided to allow it to happen. Very similar. I'd say Paul's situation is similar to Job in a way. So here's Job. Have you considered Job? Let's go to verse 9 through 11. Job 1, 9 through 11. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? See, he had gone on the earth and he couldn't find something against Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his household and around all that belongs to him on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his livestock has increased in the land. But on the other hand, stretch out your hand and touch all that belongs to him and see whether he will curse you to his face, to your face. And so behind the scenes, the adversary is saying to Yahweh that if Job goes through adversity, he's going to curse you. And it proves there's no such thing as somebody who loves God and fears God and so on by faith. Now, we all know about the book of Job. And so things progressively got worse because God gave Satan permission to do this behind the scenes. And so things get worse and worse and worse for Job. And then they even got even worse when his comforters showed up. Because they started their philosophical questioning of, well, what did you do? It's kind of what we think. Who's the worst sinner, right? What did you do? And in the end, Job's vindicated although corrected. Remember, Job said, I repent in dust and ashes. I put my hand over my mouth. When something bad happens in our lives as Christians, something we have no control over, something that we don't want, that we wish would go away, if we honor God and say, We have the permission from God, yea, the command to do so, to go to the throne of grace and tell God exactly what we want. I can't handle this. It's too much for me. It's too too big of a sorrow. I'm I'm at the end of my limits here. I'm not going to quit trusting you, but God, please help me do something for me. And put it in God's hands. Paul didn't just one time have a bad day and say, oh, help me. This was so serious, he went three times. And finally accepted the answer, my grace is sufficient for you, which had already been given. Because it says in the Greek, he had said. So I remembered what God said. So if God doesn't take away the trial, and God allows it to go on, I believe that Paul is an example for us to accept it and ask God for grace to to honor him and serve him and praise him no matter what happens. That's not bad. That's good. That's what faith looks like. But I know from my interaction with people who heard the false teachers that There's a lack of faith in many cases. And I've even had people say to me, when I say, come to Christ on his terms through the gospel, let God deal with the demons. You don't want to do it personally. Let him deal with it. He's in charge of the divine council and Satan and all the demons under him. And then appeal to God and serve him no matter what. You know what some people have said to me? I'm afraid it won't work. I've heard that, literally. I'm afraid it won't work. I said, what do you mean? One guy said, well, I'm afraid I'll have these symptoms. And I don't want the symptoms. So if the curse breaker and the deliverance counselor can make the symptoms go away, then I'm going to go there. I'll go anywhere that gets rid of the symptoms. And to him, the symptoms were caused by demons. You know, I've said to people, how do you know that? Are you God? Do you, do you have the ability to see the unseen realm? No, you don't because I don't and nobody does. 
because God has graciously not given us that. We don't want it. And if you try to have it now, you're doing something premature. In the future, we will judge angels, according to God. But not now, because we, we, we can't. We don't know what's going on. We're not in the divine council. We can't go into that realm. And I'm not questioning what's real. Demons are real. Satan is real. The divine war power council is real. The warfare is real. I am telling us how to respond to it in faith and honor God. If the apostle Paul, with his messenger from Satan, goes to God three times and appeals and finally accepts, my grace is sufficient for you, can we not do the same? Should we do something else? Should we go looking for some man to take away what God's allowed us to have to deal with? The thorn in the flesh has what nobody knows what it is. So I'm not going to speculate, but it was something Paul didn't want, and we know it was a messenger from Satan. So if you look at, uh, let me quote Hartley again here, and then we'll go to the next slide. Suspicious of Job's reasons for fearing God, the Satan, which means the adversary, challenged Yahweh to test Job's fidelity using imperatives as though he were ordering Yahweh. He sought to force Yahweh to test Job. He argued that if Yahweh would stretch out his hand and strike all that God had, Job would surely curse Yahweh to his face. The self-serving basis of Job's loyalty would be revealed. Whereas Job continually feared that one of his children might have cursed God in his heart, thus Satan projected that Job would become so angry he would curse God to his face. Job was concerned his children may curse God. Satan says Job will do it himself. Now, dear ones, why is this in the Bible? Why did this all happen? Why, are, why is it revealed for us? Because we need to know everything that God has said and written. Listen, God knows the heart. The book of Job is not denying the reality that God knows the heart, as it says in Jeremiah 17. In fact, God knows the heart is revealed in the fact that he went ahead with this to show that in the end, Job would believe God and not curse him and go off as an unbeliever. But for us to see <clears throat> the reality that our spiritual trials and attacks from Satan and the things and the calamities that may happen on this earth are evidence not that we're worse than every other sinner, but that we are living in a fallen world and that if we love God and trust him and serve him and fall at his feet and depend on him and never curse him, that God will bless us and we will indeed have the gift of eternal life because we are trusting in Christ and not ourselves. We learn from this. But there are so many people who say, well, no, I'm afraid it won't work. I need, I need to go to these other guys that will tell me how to get rid of the demon. Yes. Is there not a parallel between Job and the modern evangelical church? Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. The evangelical, the pop modern evangelical comes to Christ, and their faith is convoluted. Yes, it's in Christ, but it's in their own ability because I accepted Jesus. But when you come to understand the gospel truth, you come to abhor yourself because you realize through the scriptures that I'm an evil, wicked sinner. This heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so you repent, and that repentance means you put your faith in Jesus Christ yeah. alone and not yeah. in yourself. Job, same thing as the modern evangelical church. There's no difference. Yeah, other than he learned his lesson. <laughs> now, um, we're having a debate about this with this Enneagram. I got uh, uh, I, some uh, people that we've known over the 
years of writing a book on this. I published a small booklet myself on Amazon, but they asked me to read the manuscript, so I'm reading it. It's very interesting. What's at issue in this Enneagram, which is going through all of the seminaries and churches now? It's a huge thing. Their primary idea is denying the sin nature, that humans have a true self that's pristine and good, and that we need to go through a process to go back and find the true self. So, Rich, what you just said is the opposite of that. And that's what these people's book starts out. Uh, I just have the manuscript. It's not published. But they're, they're talking about how do you come to know yourself, like Rich was just bringing up. Well, traditionally, people said when you come face-to-face with your own sin, through the preaching of the law and the gospel, the conviction of sin is a revealing of the true self, which is a wicked, hardened sinner that hates God. And that shows you your need for the gospel, for God to give us a new heart and a new spirit and to cleanse us and to make us free from our own guilt through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died for sins once for all. And they're right. But you're right, too. So now we have a thing, this Enneagram, telling everybody they have a pure, pristine, true self that they just haven't had a journey to go find. This antithetical to the gospel. It's attack against Christ, attack against the gospel, and they can't see what's wrong with it. I, I would just challenge people. If nothing else, go read Jeremiah 17 and see what God says about the heart. And read Jeremiah 17 and find out what God says about how to be blessed versus cursed. I'll give you a preview. The heart is wicked. Only God knows it. And the answer is the way to be blessed instead of cursed is to trust in Yahweh. The man who trusts in man is cursed. The person who trusts in God is blessed. It's simple. Now, the New Testament lays it all out because Christ made that possible through his death, burial, and resurrection. So, Satan is the adversary. The answer is the feet of God. And don't curse God. Don't turn against God, but trust him no matter what happens. Let's go to the next one. Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. We see here again a similar role for the Satan. Do you have any a comment, Eric, on the Hebrew about why there's some question whether this is actually Satan, proper noun in Job in these places, or the role, the, the Satan, the adversary. Do you, have, do you know anything about that? I really don't. Okay, all right, I'll let it go then. You can go look at the scholars then. Yeah, that's right. All right, Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh. Notice again, like in Daniel and like in other places, this was God doing a special thing for one of his prophets to pull back the curtain, so to speak, to see into this divine council realm. So this happened here with, in this case. He showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, this was the high priest at the time of the, of the as they were restoring the temple, standing before the angel of Yahweh, And Satan was standing on his right to accuse him. So here again, we have the same role of the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing Joshua, the high priest, of being defiled. Then it says, but Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuked you, O Satan. Notice that. We have a Trinitarian thing going on here, I believe. Yahweh rebukes you, O Satan. Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebukes you. Is this not a stick snatched from the fire? So again, Satan and the divine council stand opposed to the purposes of God. And the way the adversary opposes the people of God is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. And that way is to appeal to God as the judge of all the earth 
is the fact that he is a just God. That's the power that Satan has. The actual justice of God. In Job, does he serve Yahweh for nothing? You're a just God. This guy's got ulterior motives. Prove it. What about Joshua, the high priest here? Uh, Yahweh rebukes you, Satan, and says, but Satan was accusing him. This guy's filthy. You can read the context. He's filthy. He's not right. He's a sinner. Is this sinner worthy to be standing as the high priest in this rebuilt temple? But what is the answer? It's a stick. Jerusalem is a stick snatched in the fire. God makes sinners righteous. That message is in the Old Testament. Go ahead. You know, I was going to have everyone turn their attention to that passage. Bob has Zechariah 3, 4. Yeah, um, go ahead to the... I don't think I put it up there. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's interesting. You have an angel of Yahweh here standing before... Go ahead. Read, read verses 3 and 4, Eric. I will. And so the angel of Yahweh we often see in the Old Testament is a... Uh, a pre-incarnate form of Christ. And you see evidence of that here in verses 3 through 4. Remember, Joshua, it's interesting, this high priest has the same name Jesus does, but yet this, this Yeshua is faulty. Ironically, this angel of Yahweh will one day be Yeshua, and he's the perfect one. In verse 3, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Filthy garments are a symbol of sin. Amen. Notice that the angel of Yahweh, this is the angel of Yahweh saying this. It says, The angel of Yahweh said, to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Here the angel of Yahweh, pre-incarnate form of Christ, is saying, I remove your iniquity. That's something only God can do. So here you have this exceedingly important scene. Satan's accusing the high priest, whose name is Jesus. He's merely a human but the pre-incarnate Jesus is saying, I'm going to remove your iniquity. That's how we stand. It's an amazing passage. Um, so thanks, Bob. This is, this is great. Yes. And so I want us to see, I'm going to go back to this, but we'll go ahead. Ultimately, the accuser is cast down because of the blood of the lamb. Okay? The accuser is cast down because of the blood of the lamb. So let me read verses 3 through 5 of Zechariah. Three, I don't have a slide for these. And Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and said to the one standing before him, this would be the court, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, see, I've taken your guilt from you and will clothe you with rich garments. And I said, let them put a clean headband on his head and they put a clean headband on his head and they clothed him with garments and the angel of Yahweh was standing by. So he, the clean garments were given to the filthy high priest by Yahweh uh, and one of the members of the divine council, Yeshua, will eventually come and be the one who would shed the blood to bring cleansing to the people of God. Mike, please, for Levon over here. While you're doing that, let me read uh, a commentator by the name of Boda, the international commentary in the Old Testament. Either the guilt that was stained, that stained the community and the priestly line and prompted the destruction of the, or the consequences of their sin, that is the punishment itself, is what had been removed. In either case, the removal of the filthy clothing is far more than the external act which qualifies Joshua for priestly service. But it related says Boda, to the removal of the guilt which brought on or the consequences of the earlier disciple of Judah. Um, such removal, dis, excuse me, dis, discipline of Judah, such removal of guilt is key to the future role of Joshua as high as priest, since the priest was essential to the removal of the guilt of the community according to Torah. According to Exodus 28, 38, the removal of the guilt of the community was especially related to the high priestly clothing. 
then says Boda, that probably foreshadows the accepted, expected removal of sin associated with the coming sprout figure in 3, 8 through 10. There will be a branch. Let me read on. This is Jesus who takes away the guilt. You're worried about the demons. You're worried about Satan. You're worried about consequences and filth and garbage. There's only one way to go. You need Christ and the blood atonement. Because if you're right before Yahweh, he's in charge of all things, and all of the accusations will fall on deaf ears because they're false. They've been dealt with by Christ. The branch, let's look forward. If you're in this chapter, Zechariah 3, 8 through 10. Listen, please, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions that are sitting before you. For the men are a sign that, look, I'm going to bring my servant the branch, the capital B. For consider the stone that I set before Joshua on the one stone or seven eyes. Look, I'm going to engrave an inscription on it, declares Yahweh of hosts. I will remove the guilt of that land in a single day. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, you will invite one another under the vine and under the fig tree. I will remove their guilt in one day. Hallelujah. That's the blood atonement, saints. The death of Christ on the cross. Yes. Yeah. um, I was thinking, when you're talking about the garments, I was thinking of this parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22, where he invites the people to come to the wedding feast. And some come without a wedding garment, which he provided, which would be his righteousness. That's the way I read it. Yes. And that... um, those who refused, they thought they could go, come in with their own clothes, their own righteousness. Um, they were, you know what happened to them. They were not allowed to. Yeah, yeah it was bad. I mean, that's what happens judgment. when we come to faith. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Amen. So, dear saints, um, this is a big part of my life and ministry for decades now, is to deal with this whole warfare worldview. And refute it from scripture, not by going to an anti-supernatural worldview that says, well, there, there are no such thing as demons or what have you. No, to, but to go to a literal biblical view of things. That all of the demons are real enough, the, the ones that whatever, whoever they are, how many, however many there are, and Satan's real enough, but that right now we're under human rulers with defined geographical boundaries in, as far as the government of the earth. The spiritual realm, the way to escape from Satan and demons is to go to Christ through the blood atonement and receive those new garments. Dana. One more thing, that'll be Dana and then we'll close in prayer. Even Martin Luther was deceived into thinking that he had to do something to interact with the, with the demonic realm. There was an incident where he, he threw an ink bottle at the, at the devil, and of course it just smashed against the wall. Well, it's silly for us to think that, that we can do something physically to hurt the demons, you know, to hurt the spirit beings. Yeah, that's a good point. But there, we have to believe that there's no greater authority and power in the entire universe than God himself, the triune God of the Bible. And, he, and so therefore, if we think the throne of grace is, I've had people even suggest that me sending them to the throne of grace was a cop-out on my part. A cop-out. That if I was a real man of God, I'd go get those demons out of them. See, they think the issue is symptomatic and geographical. Where they are and what harm they're doing. But the issue is not geography or personal identity or symptoms. It's relational. Are you related to God in Christ through the blood atonement and have those clean garments and have your sins washed away, 
or are you in the realm of Satan trying to rearrange the furniture because you don't like how it's going right now? That's the two issues. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. May we better understand you as we continue to learn. Bless Eric as he preaches to us today. We, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.